Hi, I'm John Foster. And I'm Joel Shalit. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. Europe's best left read in English. I couldn't agree more. We have a pinch hitter in this week. Normally, Josh White would be my partner here, but he's jet-setting around Europe currently. And so our editor, Joel Shalit, has kindly agreed to jump in the cockpit and join us for this week's broadcast. Pleased to be here. We're going to start on a somber note. Yesterday, there was a mass shooting in Buffalo, which is about 190 miles from here, where I'm sitting in western New York. Ten African-Americans were killed by a guy who had earlier on posted a screed on the internet talking about the great replacement theory, the idea that whites are being replaced by minorities as a sort of systematic project of the left. This is a theory which is often retailed by people like Tucker Carlson, others on Fox News, and the extreme and populist right in the United States. It's yet another horrific tragedy in what one of my friends referred to as the years of lead going on here in the United States. But it does raise an interesting connective issue to what we were going to talk about today in any case, which was the question of fascism. I published a piece on the battleground on Friday a review of the reissue of George Moss's posthumously published book of essays. And fascism is really an important topic in terms of modern politics today. I mean, if you listen to people on the left, people on the far left in the United States, in Europe, fascism is making a comeback. And this raises the question, what is fascism? What does it mean when we designate something as fascism? Why is it important? Well, it's important because in order to properly oppose whatever it is from the right that's happening now, we need to be clear about exactly what it is. And if we're going to use terms like fascism to designate it, we then need to be clear about what it is exactly. Well, it's a particularly American discussion insofar as the Trump presidency became a focus for people with anxiety about the rise of fascism in the United States because of his right-wing politics, his rather crude right-wing politics, and his explicit misogyny and his explicit racism. And so he very much parroted the tabloid idea of what a Nazi or a fascist is supposed to be. And it fits with the impression that a lot of Americans, particularly on the center-left, grow up with who, for example, come from European or Jewish backgrounds who may have lost family in the Holocaust. And so, for example, in my case, I had a father who fought in World War II, even though I'm fairly young to have a parent who did that. And I had grandparents who struggled to bring Jews out of Hitler's Germany to Palestine in the 1930s. And so I was always raised with the idea that fascism was synonymous with racism and xenophobia. It certainly is. And this raises a number of issues. Certainly in the United States, fascism, especially in the 1960s, became the leading term of abuse employed by people on the left. What could be worse than fascism? And there was a similar sort of process that went on in Germany, starting in the early 1960s with the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial. The generation that had been born after the Second World War started to come of age and then started to ask questions of the older generation in Germany about what they'd been doing between 1933 and 1945, and very often not liking the answers. And then it became the case that fascism, especially as you move on to the era of terrorist groups like the Red Army Fraction, who were incoherent in their ideas in a lot of cases, but who definitely employed fascism as their favorite term of abuse. I mean, there's a very famous moment in one of the RAF trials when Andreas Bader says yeah. something like, I want to put it on record that the judge is a fascist asshole. That tells you a lot about what they think the worst thing that you can say about somebody is. 
Well, especially in a German context. In a lot of ways, the rise of discourse about fascism during the 1960s within the greater new left, both in the United States and Europe, tended to eclipse what the rise of neoliberal capitalism and how effective it was at taking over a lot of the problems that had been historically associated with fascism, like racism, for example, like in the destruction of the environment. And so people read the Frankfurt School especially the first generation of the Frankfurt School, as a means of unlocking the fact that fascism was something that was just symptomatic of a much larger problem with capitalism that, at least starting in the 1970s, neoliberalism began to epitomize. Yeah, fascism, it's a term that's been used so much as a term of abuse that quite famously, the French historian Eugène Weber said in his book, Varieties of Fascism, which he published, I think, in 1965, fascism had become just a way of giving the dog a bad name so you can hang him, which certainly does injustice to the concept. I mean, it describes more than that, certainly. On the one hand, in the immediate wake of the war in the 1950s, there was the whole discourse of totalitarianism where people with certain Cold War agendas wanted to create a sort of omnibus concept that linked fascism with communism as two kinds of the same movement, that is to say, both inimical to freedom, that passed away because it turned out that that creates far more problems than it solves, and also because it's clearly an ideologically motivated approach to historical study. Now we get to the other side of the coin. Since the 1980s, there's been this movement to develop what's often referred to as fascism studies or fascist studies. George Moss was an interesting early figure in this. Roger Griffin is currently probably the most prominent of the fascism studies people, and their goal seems to be we're going to create a concept of fascism that's freestanding, that distinguishes it from other kinds of right-wing authoritarianism, which in a way is what you want to do because concepts need to do work, as I pointed out in the piece I published on Friday. If a concept doesn't help you to draw distinctions between, for instance, in this case, right-wing authoritarianism on one hand, generally speaking, and fascism on the other, then it's really not doing anything useful. So the question is, is it possible to come up with a unitary, freestanding definition of fascism? Do we need to? And then what implications does that have for fascist, fascistic as adjectives in the context of a modern political discourse? Right. I think it's fair to argue from a specific point of view that fascism is the equivalent in modern political discourse of fundamentalism to modern religion. It represents an anachronistic view of the world that seeks to impose power through terror and through an ending of democracy and is rooted in an idea of the nation state that's exclusivist as opposed to inclusive. It rejects globalization as being in conflict with the nation state. In your article, you talk about Roger Griffin's idea of palingenetic ultranationalism. Griffin is absolutely correct that that is a feature of what we call modern fascism. And it refers back to, or it underlines the fact that fascism is a form of nostalgia for a particular kind of politics and simplicity to politics that never existed. And one which imagines past histories that are simply speculation and have no empirical or factual basis. That's a big part of why fascism, to a large degree, is a political form of fundamentalism that is comparable to the kind of fantasies 
for example, that Christian evangelicals have about America's founding when they try to argue that America is a Christian state and was founded as a Christian state and was founded as a white Christian state. And so nationalism always needs this historical legitimation of itself. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say that fascism is a form of nationalism. And that's probably the most consistent theme that one will find in different kinds of fascisms, particularly in Europe and the United States. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things here. There was some discussion going on when the article got posted that fascism, German National Socialism, especially also Italian fascism, but across the board in the varieties that arose in the 1930s, is this idea that we're really atavistic movements. We're looking back to some past that will be a sort of way of structuring the new order that we want to build up. It pays to remember that, in fact, fascism is, in many important respects, a modernist movement. I mean, there's a reason why Mussolini is fascinated with Martinotti and the futurist movement and speed and intensity. There's a really great article by Paul Betts came out, I think, in 2002 called The New Fascination with Fascism, The Case of Nazi Modernism, in which he looks at it and says the sort of swadesant atavism of fascism is, in fact, a kind of a put on. I mean, all references to the past are imaginary in politics. In American politics, they're always looking back to that leave it to beaver moment in the late 1950s when one income could support a family. So there's always this element of imaginariness. So what kind of distinctions are we making? Palingenetic ultranationalism, that sounds like a great term. And I've had arguments with people like, well, you know, Trump wanted to create a new order. Well, he wanted to change some things. As far as he was concerned, he wanted to get back to a past in which white male voices could just be taken for granted. You know, if I say we need to nuke hurricanes or wash our insides out with bleach, well, I'm a white guy, so those ideas are valid on their face, or at least should be discussed as reasonable suggestions. But this is a world away from the whole Nazi, we're going to create a new order that's going to sweep away the gerontocracy, that's going to sweep away the liberal order. You know, one thing I did mention in the piece that I posted the other day was one of the defining characteristics, if you look at fascist movements in the in the 20s and 30s with youth. Watch Leni Riefenstahl's The Triumph of the Will. There's a whole segment in there about the sort of Hitler youth jamboree, where they're like running around shirtless, and there's a very homoerotic dimension to it. That's a whole other thing. But, but think about yeah. this in the context of Trump's approach to youth, which is telling Lush and kind of inappropriate stories to a Boy Scout jamboree. That's, I think, a very different appreciation of youth than the Nazis. And I think you can extend this into broader analyses of what fascism is about. I mean, it's not really the same as just make Germany great again. It's we're going to create a completely new order that wipes away all the stuff before. We're going to bring in some of the important stuff like Frederick Barbarossa or whatever. But basically, this is going to be a completely new thing. And why is this important? Well, I mean, one reason is I spent hours debating with people during the rise of Trump and Trumpism about whether Trump was the harbinger of a new fascism, whether Trumpism constituted fascism. And I really don't think that it does. I mean, the guy is a bad person. But there's plenty of ways to be a bad person that don't make you a fascist. Right. Trump is just a great target for left-wing anxieties in general. And Trump is populism, which is, I think, a better way to talk about Trump. Trump is populism is a very broad tableau that can have any number of isms applied to it within its populist rubric. 
I think for a lot of people in the United States and Europe who are concerned about the possibility of fascism renewing itself as a national politics, they tend to approach the issue from the perspective of its effects and its ideological hints in right-wing politics more than an analysis of the changes in right-wing ideology on its own. And so right-wing populism or national populism, as we've oftentimes called it in the battleground, is sort of a great place to start doing that because in its right-wing form, populism attracts people who would otherwise be attracted to fascism or national socialism or any other kind of more organized or doctrinal authoritarianism. And so that's a good thing to clarify about understanding what fascism is and what fascism isn't and why we talk about fascism today. And I think secondly, we talk about fascism a lot right now in contemporary politics because neoliberalism is in crisis. And so you look at the turn, for example, to Keynesianism or the nostalgia for Keynesianism that's all of a sudden come about on the part of people who otherwise have been proponents of austerity. And you're like, okay, there's one response to the crisis of neoliberalism. All of a sudden, you know, capitalist ideologues are saying, well, we need to start spending a little money on COVID-19 cures and bailing out entities other than banks, like maybe the middle class. And so these are the other reasons we're talking about fascism right now. The fact of the matter is that the people also who lead a lot of what constitute national populist parties, like Rassemblement National, the former Front National, like Lega Salvini, like Tucker Carlson's forthcoming version of the GOP, if we can speculate about that, they all co-opt ideas and politics from 20th century fascism as well as more modern, far-right ideas about diversity and immigration. And so that's the, sort of the third reason why we're talking about fascism right now. I'm wondering, well, are these people in these big populist parties like Salvini, like Le Pen, are they fascists? You talk to Italian leftists, they'll say, nah, nah, they're just far-right, you know? And you gotta be careful to draw that distinction because you have Casa Pound and Forza Nuova and, and more organized traditional fascist alliances and organizations in Italy that are closer to the original thing. And I think there's some truth to that as well. Nonetheless, I think that the ascension of nationalism in general on the center-right is always triggered for this discussion about fascism, particularly as nationalism was an important part of national socialism. And so we need to also understand that that's an element in our public discussion of what fascism is. That gets a lot really right, I think. And the question for me a lot of times is, what is fascism doing for us as a concept? And in the United States, I had lots of discussions with people who basically conceded that you couldn't come up with a consistent generic fascism or fascist minimum, a freestanding definition of what fascism was, much less how it mapped onto Trump and Trumpism, but who nonetheless insisted on talking about Trump and Trumpism in terms of fascism because, and I had people say this to me explicitly, we need to get people's attention. We need to really focus people on the progressive left 
not just the extreme left who already think everything is fascism, but the people on the progressive left and maybe what's left of the center in this country to get their act together and start really opposing this right-wing populism that's colonized the Republican Party. That strikes me as a kind of a, a very elitist idea that we concede that we don't really know what we're exactly talking about when we talk about fascism, but for the plebs who don't have our concerns or our reading knowledge of whatever, we're just going to let them believe this is fascism in order to get them motivated. That, I think, is a really elitist idea and one that doesn't really put us on the road to a serious leftist opposition to right-wing authoritarianism, authoritarian populism, whatever it is that's going on. Now, theories of fascism are as old as fascism itself. And starting in the 1920s with Clara Zetkin and a number of other people, there was this idea that fascism is a movement put in place by big industrialists or people running the capitalist system because capitalism isn't working so well. So what they need to do is come up with a way of physically compelling the working class to do what they want them to do. This was a problematic idea even from the start. Number one, because in Germany, it got the causality backwards. National socialism and other related movements arose. The larger capitalists were very uncomfortable with them, especially because they had socialism in the name. They had to have Hitler come by and say, well, look, we just put socialism in the name to try and get some workers to join, but you don't have to worry about anything from us. In fact, he had a sort of sort out meeting with a number of large industrialists where he went to them and said, look, you know, you don't really have anything to fear from us. We're not communists. We're not going to expropriate you. If you read Adam Tooze's book, The Wages of Destruction, which is the state-of-the-art analysis of the Nazi economy, the Nazi government really only expropriated or nationalized one business. It was the Junkers aircraft manufacturer. They expropriated lots of Jewish people, but that was just part of their anti-Semitic ideology. It wasn't any socialistic motivation that caused them to do that. Since then, there have been lots of other theories. By the way, for people who are interested, I really recommend Stanley Payne's book, Fascism, Comparison and Definition. Stanley Payne was a colleague of George Mossop for a long time at the University of Wisconsin. It provides in about 200 pages a very comprehensive explanation of the various types of fascist parties, the various ways that people have tried to explain it. He makes, I think, some pretty good distinctions between fascism and right-wing authoritarianism more generally. Which is key because nowadays, and this is the problem I think that we're most centrally discussing, people want to take anything that's right-wing authoritarianism, just name it fascism because they hate it, with reason. But the two things are different and it's important because what we're calling it is an expression of what we think is actually going on. And that underlying what's going on plays an important role in how it is that we're going to oppose it. If we're just saying, woohoo, it's all fascism that doesn't conceptually get us to a very useful place in terms of what we're going to do as people on the left trying to oppose the rising right-wing populism or right-wing authoritarianism. Oh, exactly. Um, simply for my purposes as an editor at this point, I am more comfortable identifying what we call fascist politics in Europe and the United States today to be far-right. I find that far-right is a much easier and inclusive term that subsumes a number of different kinds of authoritarian political movements whose identity is still being worked out. And so it takes some of the oppressive sting of the F word out of doing journalism on far-right politics. I mean, that's one of the problems I've always had with the term fascism. In general, I think going back to Horkheimer and Adorno's dialectic of enlightenment, you know, 
they spoke of fascism as this kind of mystical form of conservatism, you know, and particularly with the ritualistic anti-modern elements of German fascism that they they diagnosed with the interest in Odinism and Norse gods and mythology and Greek myth. Fascism was, for them, a very cultish way of returning to an enchanted world that modernity had overturned by through science and through instrumental reason. I think all of that is true about the fascism that they were looking at in the 1940s in that devastating book that I think everybody still needs to read. It has lots of lessons for us about capitalism today still. Nonetheless, I think that one can easily get bogged down in the arcania and witchcraft of analyses like that, which require us to get a more sober hold on the fact that much of what we encounter today as far-right ideology is not systematic, but being worked out. And that's what we find, particularly in American politics and establishment American politics with people like Trump. And to a lesser extent in European politics, where the ideologues that constitute the neo-fascist, if you want to call it that, far right, like the IFD and Lega Salvini and the Rassemblement National, only hint at when they use terms like sovereignism, which they borrow from people like Alexander Dugin, who represents another continuum in the discourse about fascism being both red and brown, as he's been characterized as being. Let's recall, there's a whole fascist ideological continuum that starts in France after the Cold War with people like Alain de Benoit, and uh, of which the Russians directly are in dialogue with the Russians that are behind the ideological world allegedly ascribed to Vladimir Putin. So let's get a hold of the whole corpus of fear that this instills in us and say, okay, we are dealing with a very vast far right that is in dialogue with the 20th century fascist right. And easy, it's ideological inheritor, but is not as clear in its authoritarian politics as what we initially believed fascism to be in the 20th century as a kind of exaggerated form of nationalism. Yeah, I think that's key. Really, what we're talking about here is a much broader far right than even in the 1920s and 30s when there was this sort of uh, movement that we now designate as fascism, starting in Italy, then moving to other places. But the historical conditions were so different that it's dangerous to try and, and map that onto what's going on now. We're better off trying to look as clearly as we can at what we're seeing now, at what's going on now. And certainly they are appropriating lots of ideas that were characteristic of European fascism in the 1930s. And political movements always do that. That calls to mind Marx's comment in the beginning of the 18th Brumaire, history always repeats itself. The first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. It's seeming to repeat itself as tragedy, but let's move on from, from that. I think that it's worthwhile using terms like post-fascist or yes. fascistic for people who are directly appropriating terms from the fascist past to try and build politics now. But by the same token, it's a lot of times not productive to use fascism as a descriptor. I mean, I've had the following conversation, and I'm sure you have too, 
with people who insisted on referring to the government of Israel as fascist or as Zionism as a form of fascism, which A, it's not, and B, then involves you in a lot of really unproductive arguments with defenders of Zionism, defenders of the government of Israel, who point out quite correctly that there are differences between fascism and what's going on in Israel, or what's going on in Palestine, what's going on in the occupied territories. The key here is we need to be ready to allow people to be bad on their own merits. That's right, exactly. People aren't just bad because they're bad in a way that people used to be. As a matter of fact, that's one of the key features of human beings. We keep finding new ways to be bad. And let's acknowledge yeah. the fact that the new right-wing populism is a new way to be bad and find a way of opposing that as opposed to trying to oppose the badness of fascism from 70 years ago, which yeah. as leftists, we didn't oppose very well at the time, I think it's fair to say. But why don't we try and do better this time by actually looking seriously at what's going on here as opposed to trying to close the circle of a struggle against a movement that we didn't manage to beat the first time around. Well, exactly. And that's why it's important to have a comparable appreciation of capitalism. Because if we don't understand how the market influences our politics, if we don't understand how the economy plays a role in our lives, we don't know what kind of political ideologies are going to follow from that. People who obsess with analyzing ideology, often don't have a concept of labor attached to their uh, analysis. And we always have to start with the base and the superstructure second. And I don't mean to sound like a crude Marxist, but I think it's very easy to get lost in the details of the superstructure without referring back to the conditions out of which it allegedly arises. I guess my point is that we can only talk about ideology so far. We have to understand the context as well out of which far-right politics emerges. It's economic, it's political, it's real world. It's not just because people are prone to thinking bad things or have historical backgrounds that they haven't worked through yet, like Germans and the Holocaust or America and colonialism or Britain and imperialism, you know, here and now matters. So there's a lot more to be said about this. And if people are interested in extending the discussion, we're certainly interested in what you have to say in the comments. We'd love to hear how you think terms like fascism, fascist can function in a modern political discourse. But for now, that's it from us for The Battleground. Thanks so much for tuning in. It was great chatting with you, John.